Hey, Circle Take listeners, thanks for joining me. Today we are talking to writer and director Ed Newmeyer about the first feature film he directed, the third chapter in the Starship Troopers series, the 2008 film Starship Troopers 3 Marauder. So as always, before you listen to the show, here are the Circle Take rules. Circle Take rule number one, we always talk about spoilers. Circle Take is a deep, deep dive. No plot turn is sacred. You have been warned. Rule two, before you go any further, you should watch this movie. I promise you, while it's possible to listen to this podcast without seeing the film, it's a million times better if you watch the film first. So, before we get started, how to watch Ed Newmeyer's Starship Troopers 3 Marauder. As of the recording of this show, it's available on Amazon Prime, iTunes, YouTube Movies, Google Play, and Vudu. This film is out there and easy to grab, so no excuses. Starship Troopers 3 Marauder. Get a hold of it and give it a watch. All right, guys, everybody one, please. Voila. Anyway, guys, hold the talking. Here we go. All right, guys, pictures up. Pictures up. Pictures up. That's real sound. Sound speed. Ed Newmeyer interview, take one. Mark. And action. This is The Circle Take, conversations, insights, and lessons from directors about their first feature film. I'm your host, Jason Schmidt. I'm an independent film producer. In 2006, I directed my first feature film, and over my career, I've had a chance to work with dozens of first-time directors, and I continue to find the experience fascinating. My guest today is writer and director Ed Newmeyer. Ed is a legend in the world of science fiction film, having written the screenplay for the blockbuster hit film RoboCop in 1987. After that, Ed wrote another blockbuster screenplay for the 1997 hit Starship Troopers. After that, he went on to write two sequels to the Starship Troopers films, and on the third film, Ed took the director's chair as well. Before he started his career in film, Ed studied journalism at the University of California, Santa Cruz, before going on to get his bachelor's degree at UCLA's School of Motion Picture and Television. Ed continues to work on both the RoboCop and Starship Troopers franchises to this day. So Ed Newmeyer, welcome to The Circle Take. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right in and talk about how this thing got started. Obviously, in 1997, you wrote the original Starship Troopers, and then in 2004... The no, it was 1997. I, I, I right, wrote, right, yeah. but 2004 is when the second one came out, which oh, you that's also right. wrote. That's right. That's and then, so I'm just trying to track backwards into this thing. So it was 97, the first one, 2004, the second one, 2008 is the film that comes along you also wrote, which the you're now directing. One. Yes. So I, I just want to kind of track into at what point in that timeline was there a green light on we're doing a third one? Well, after the first one came out and was sort of not initially as successful as everyone wanted, shall we say, but had nonetheless done very well in home video. The home video division at Sony Pictures said, hey, you know, we we would do some direct-to-video titles. And the producer of the first one, John Davison, who was an old friend of mine and of Phil Tippett, said that he he got us together and said that we should make a couple movies and that the first one would be directed by Phil and then the second one would be directed by me. And it, so this is all before the first one, or, or no, the no, second. No, this is after the, after first, the one first one, but has come out the a couple years after the first one came out. Davison said, John Davison said, "Well, we could probably do a, a direct-to-video movie." And none of this was concrete. It was just the notion was that Phil would direct a second one, and and if I if it worked out, I would direct a third one or something. 
And uh, so we all agreed to do that, and we agreed to do it on a, on a very limited budget, six million bucks. Phil shot it in, uh, I think he had 30 days, or maybe 28, 28 days he had. And we shot it Union, SAG, in LA. So it was, you know, that's expensive way to do it. Sure. Uh, but nobody wanted to get go out of the country or something like that. And so the money only went so far. So was that was that one almost primarily soundstage only? Yeah, it was almost all soundstage. I think we had a couple shots outside. Everything else was on a soundstage, which hung in for a planet that was almost always night. And, uh, and <laughs> right, uh, as you do, and uh, it had yeah, and and we <laughs> had an out, it was a, three. It was an outpost <laughs> where it was always night, you right. know, and it all happened inside. And there was set, so there was an exterior set, and then there was an interior set, and right. we had to do some bug battles as much as we could which was it was an interesting experience because you just had no money at all and I'd gone from having a fair amount of money but limitations to no money at all right. and it was very I would say it was highly creative between uh, Phil Tippett and I talking about what you could do and what you couldn't do and, and it made it more interesting than you'd think and this is, you know, just to remind the audience, this is in the late 90s, early 2000s when the DVD market was booming. Yeah, this is in 2000. So Starship comes out at the beginning as the DVD market is really starting to have teeth. And yeah. it doesn't perform in the worldwide box office as well, but in home video, it's a monster. Right. And it is the... Uh, the the disc that sells for Sony and in retrospect it really is sort of like the perfect made for home video kind of movie why because you can just watch it um, you know what I mean like it, in that model that the studios were looking at, like all the kind of movies they wound up like green lighting for home video like this movie had all of that in spades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, it like, was a brand. I mean, what it was. My understanding of it was that it was a brand. It was a worldwide brand, nonetheless, and it was a movie that had a really high male following. Mm -hmm. So, so it was a movie that guys who were the lead buyers of DVDs at the beginning of this time just had to have that movie. And so it, it, it sold well enough that they thought that they could do, as you were saying, they saw a way to keep doing them. So the second one really was at the peak or at the end peak market of DV, uh, DVD market. And it did very well, despite the fact that it, it was challenged, shall we say. And then two years later, I make mine in you know, three years later, 2007, I'm making, uh, we're, we're, we're just about to release uh, Marauder 3, which was made for $8 million and was the most anybody had ever spent on a DVD, a movie made for video, at, at Sony anyway. And because they were hoping that they could keep that good feeling going of, of it. And the market started to decline a little bit there. So it made, they made about the same, but they, you know, it was more expensive. They the lost more because it was more expensive. Yeah, IMDb, they, they by the way, what's uh, that? IMDb, by the way, will tell you, you guys had $9 million. Yeah, it, it was eight, it was like think eight, two. And for a while it used to say $20 million on IMDb. Oh, sure. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, so it was, whatever it was, it was a, it was one of those things. We shot it in South Africa, so we... We right. got more out of our money. So at some point after Phil's movie, they greenlit. Yeah, so Phil's movie did well enough, did well enough for them that they wanted to do another one. And then it, for a while it was going to be, Phil was going to do it, and then no one was going to do it, and then it all fell apart, and then someone there really liked the idea of it, and they came back to me, and I had an idea I wanted to do, and uh, which was kind of about religion and stuff like that. And uh, so they said, go. And I wrote it, 
and took much longer than they wanted because they, you know that always happens. And eventually, uh, the movie they greenlit the movie, so it was something that they, that they saw could make move money on there. And I kept sort of saying, "I'll prove it to you that I that I'm the director," and I never insisted. I had a little bit of a legal leverage to, you know, that they had to act in conscience, good conscience about me directing the movie. And I think they couldn't find anybody better to do it. So then I ended up directing it. <laughs> so by default, you got the job. Because, uh, like, you know, the question I, that always comes up that people always want to know is, how did you get the gig? Well, I think I wrote I think I wrote my way into it. And I think I did have a legal position because the notion was that w- when I made Starship 2, that I would be given... The, the opportunity to direct the next one. It's not like a, um, you know, a fixed deal, but it's like, it actually, my lawyer later told me, no, they have to kind of have, they have to have a good reason not to use you then. So I already did by doing Starship 2, which I did for no money practically, and and it was an arduous experience. I got, I, I sort of earned the right to be tried out for Starship 3. Now, that is not to say later one of the guys I worked with, great guy who did a bunch of second unit on it, said, you know, they came to me first. <laughs> and I didn't want to do it. And, and, I, and I, thank you. Thank you, Claudio, for this chance. But, um, but you know, that's just how, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you just have to, you have to, you have to just keep pursuing it. And then I think you have to act as if. And, and really, the, the trick was, in the right moment, acting as if you're the director seemed to work pretty well. And, sure. and, and I, that was going to be one of my questions, sure. too, was that, was it, was it like your intention, your desire to direct Yeah, that was the only was reason I did like, it. No, I, I actually wrote the script with the idea that I would direct it. And uh, the, whole, the, whole, the whole motivation was, okay, I can direct a movie if I do this. Okay. And in fact, I think John Davison said, look, this is the best way. The biggest chance you'll get to, to direct a movie will be this. And right. it was, I had a relationship to the property. I had put my hours in, as it were, my time in. So you, you get into the script, and then I always like to get an idea of like how close up to the day of shooting and beyond are you doing rewrites, if at all. Well... You know, uh, I must say that uh, well, I think one of my failings on this was that I did not keep rewriting it enough. In other words, I the nice thing about being a director is who is also the writer is suddenly the problems of being a writer disappear. And once you're the director, no one says anything anymore except, oh, it's a great script. Oh, I really enjoyed it. You know, occasionally someone will say. It. But I think that on RoboCop and on Starship Troopers, I wrote on those through production as a writer. I was just constantly trying to get it to be better and better and better. And I did do some production writing. I just think probably in a perfect world, I would have rewritten that script a couple more times before I did it. But that's just, you know, that's that's hindsight. It, and so did you feel like you kind of like maybe like took your writer hat off while you were directing the film? A little well, more than you should have? Not really. I think... I don't know about that. I mean, writing and directing are really different things. And yeah, this is that's why I'm asking. This is what people don't understand, and writers don't understand this. One of my favorite things to say to other writers I'm working with right now is, hey, we're not directing this, you know. We're writing this. Right. And there's a real difference between writing something and directing. And, and what I would say to all the writers out there listening is, uh, you know, the directors cannot do it without what you're doing. And they also can't tell you how, even though they, they want to. You have to give them a story that is compelling and that will work on the screen because no one else will. And if you can't, then someone, uh, some idiot is going to come in and say, here's what we should do. And it's really your job. And directors, I would say, unless you're a, one of those rare writer directors, you probably can't do it without a writer. It's something that writers have to do. So I think that in that they are different, 
you're not often, you know, when you're when you're directing a movie and you're prepping a movie, you are actually, you know, kind of rewriting because you you're testing things out with other people and you're having new ideas, or you're going, oh, this scene won't work; it's too expensive, and so you're going to change things around a little there. I actually thought that on the set, being a writer was really really useful because, as the director, on as set? the director, because I always knew what the scene was about. And I always knew one of the things I had learned from working with other directors than other than Paul Verhoeven, who was a genius, is that, you know, you can write a scene and in your mind, you know, well, this scene plays off of the main character and you need a close up there to know what what is the main character thinking about this piece of dialogue that's going on in front of them. That's where the scene is. But some directors don't know that. So they don't shoot that close. Covering up. the close up. So they're the clo- they're, they're not covering the, cl- the reaction shots, and you don't have them, and then the scenes don't play at all. So you have five things in a scene you want to hit, and three of them don't play because you don't have the reaction shots. And that was something I learned. So I always knew where the camera. As a writer, who as as well as I knew my scenes, I always knew where the camera should be, and that was really helpful because I always tell you know where the camera is, but if you know the scenes really well and how they're going to play and who you have to cover in a conversation or in an action, then as a, the writer knows that, and I think, or should know that, and that that was very helpful to me. We'll get away from writing this and more into production in a little bit, but whenever I have the director who also wrote sure. it, it, it's sort of both of these things at once. In this project in particular, was there any consideration given at all to the fan base? Because we're deep enough into the 2000s where the internet is sort of there. Mm-hmm. One of the things, I think what you're asking is, is that I did insist that we have Johnny Rico, the character Johnny Rico, Casper Van Dien, back in the movie. That was the one thing I said, it, to, if, I want to direct, if I'm going to direct this movie, I want to bring Casper back. Well, that was, Johnny, that was absolutely my next question. Yeah, was no, because was that, he always on board? He was always on board. In fact, I tried to get him, we had a little bit of a disagreement on the second one, and I tried to get him back in there. And Phil, Phil it wasn't that he didn't like Casper, he had this notion that Phil was afraid that if it was a bunch of dumb kids, it would be a movie for dumb kids. And so he wanted to have older people playing uh, those parts and he wanted to be more of a horror movie than what he perceived one to be and so he didn't want Casper in it and I, I even tried to kind of trick him back into the to the thing but it didn't work out so I thought it was important for the movie to have Casper and I do really think that Casper is the heart and soul of that movie franchise you know it, it, when you have him you have one of those movies especially in your film like when he walks in you're like oh okay here's the movie yeah a little you know, bit and, you know and like I think in terms of the fan I was pretty confident of what it was that the fans liked about the movie, you know, those movies that they were kind of positive exploration of war movies is what they really were. And so I had some guiding ideas about that. And with Casper, you know, the Johnny Rico character is the Johnny Rico character. He's he's just he's he's a lot of fun to follow around for me anyway. Okay. So that that in terms of writing it, that was all a given. I think the mistake I made writing it was one that I tried not to make, and that was I didn't want to write a movie that was, you know, like where I was trying to write a, you know, 20 million dollar movie for 3 million dollars. And I swore I wouldn't do that and I sort of did it. You know, I right. sort of didn't have enough money to do all the things that I did. And right. you and end up writing a finale in which the bug is the entire planet. Well, which, that wasn't that, that. Not a small concept. No, no. I mean, I think that's kind of fun. But I, I mean, in terms of execution. And, sure. and, and, the, and Robert Skotek, who did all that kind of stuff, was great. And I was lucky to have him. But in terms of like shooting a battle scene in six hours... And Verhoeven had shot a battle scene in two weeks. Right. You know, that, 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 there's a little difference there. And Verhoeven is a genius, but he also 
got always he would always he would just look at you and go well yeah you have to you know you don't make the movie if you don't have enough time you know and, right. and he's right um, about that so when you get into production how many days do you get to shoot the film uh, on this one I got 30 days and did you have a sit down with Verhoeven to any sort of I did I did when I was you know Paul wasn't very interested in anything that you know he's not making uh it's just that's not who he is and that's understandable but when he found out I was actually going to go direct this movie he said oh let's have lunch and or let's have let's get together and so we had a particular we'd had a lot of breakfasts and lunches over the years where we worked but this one was devoted entirely to what he was going to tell me about shooting a movie and he had just come back he had just shot a movie, it was after Black Book, and he said, here's what I found out. You won't be able to finish the movie if you shoot it the old-fashioned way with a single camera, one shot at a time. You need more footage. You need more cameras. So he said, more cameras, shoot as much footage as you can, always run more cameras, otherwise you won't be able to make the movie on your schedule. And that was pretty good advice. And I'm trying to think what else... So I, I really, and I had sort of had this idea anyway, but I organized the, the shoot because it was ambitious for, you know, for the money uh, with, with a second unit, with kind of two second units and a splinter unit for effects. So I actually had four units going and sometimes all at once. And, and, then, and that helped me get the movie. So you, you're your A team and then a B and a C team I had an a and team, also an effects and team. And I had a B team. The B, the official B team was John Merlowski. Mm-hmm. And then I had another guy, Claudio Fay, who was a second unit director. And I wanted, and I didn't know Claudio that well, so I wanted to have somebody I knew there. Yeah, yeah. And I had John there. So I had John and Claudio. And then Skotek had kind of ended up with his own little unit too. Okay. Bob Skotek. Sure. And so I had a lot of cameras. On your A team, did you have a two camera on your A team? Or were we, you on single camera? We had we team? often ran two cameras on a team. Uh, we also had a steady cam. Well, we had a steady camera. We had two cameras on a team. Sometimes steady cam. Sometimes still. Lorenzo Senatore was the DP on the a team, and he was a pretty experienced guy. And he was really fast. I mean, he was known. It was a really lucky thing that I got somebody as good as Lorenzo. And I think Lorenzo enjoyed working on the movie it was where someone let him have a lot of say about how things would work and I would just sit there and we would talk about the story and and he would say well I, I think I'd do this or I'd do that and I would go okay that's fine let's cool. do it you know and if I had a really specific idea he would always shoot it so it was a rare and genuine back and forth yeah I think so he knew more than I did and he was he, he knew more about making movies than I did and so he knew I was a first timer and he kind of wrangled me but that was okay right. I, I kind of but, but still allowed you to get the stuff that you oh wanted. yeah no there was never a problem that way I actually got everything I, the one thing I would say was most successful is no one ever said no to me for anything anything and I went in with this attitude I decided I would I would ask for everything and if someone told me no and they were reasonable I would just come up with another idea and I decided to do that and right it never happened and it never happened it never happened in fact maybe it should maybe I didn't ask for enough but I hardly ever pushed for anything and everybody always tried to do what I wanted to do South Africa was a, a wonderful experience that way and so it really I felt it was on me to come up with better ideas you know now do you think it was a betterment for the film or a detriment to it that you didn't have to go back to the creative well and, and come up with well I mean I, I, st- I, I think I, I think that the movie was better than a movie I would have made here because the crew was better and the resources were better used and the people really tried hard I mean I think it was it was good I, I just think in retrospect I probably should have rewritten the script as I said I should have done it more I should have done it better my real regret is that I did not storyboard more 
And it was, I storyboarded, it's, it's hard to storyboard visual ideas. And what I did storyboard worked really well. And so it left me thinking I was lazy and I should have done more. Are you somebody who considers themselves someone who can draw? Well enough to draw, a, you know, well enough to, it's hard and it's not fun. It looks awkward. So it makes it not fun to do it. But if you have the ideas and you put them down in some sketch form, they usually worked. So I, I mean, I could draw well enough. Okay. I had a visual perspective about certain things that, that helped. I think the directors that are born and there are only a few of them, are visual, and they're visual in a way that I'm not, that most people are not. Those are the people that are just, you know, those people. The rest, and, of, the rest of us have to And the rest of us of have work to work really it. hard, and, you know, maybe we'll get lucky. Right. <laughs> and you guys were, this is all in 2007 in, yeah. on film. Yeah, we shot on, we, we had a chance to do, uh, Starship Troopers 2 had been uh, digital, 20, it was like back at the beginning of digital, and it really wasn't that much fun. So I, we had an opportunity to do film, and I also thought, well, this is the last time anybody will give you know me or anybody else the opportunity to shoot film. So we shot video film. film. Yeah, so we shot film, and it was a. I thought it was a good decision actually. That, so I'm just imagining that's a lot of cameras rolling a lot yeah. of film. What was really weird because I had it was really it made me really nervous. I remember this is a John John Murlowski story where I was directing second unit one day, and John was operating the camera as he does, and. I watched him, they had a switch that started the camera that was just like a light switch, like a wall light switch. And it was really frightening to me to think of, oh my God, there's film running, you know? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and yet we'd been burning a lot of film. We, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know. It's just another That, that sense of preciousness has sort of left the business. That doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard on set since film has mm-hmm. died, other than, you know, the Spielbergs of the world that, you know, well, just let it burn. It's just ones and zeros, man. That is true. And I wonder if that, gives if you I know there's a sense of like oh my god let's go there's an immediacy and energy you get out of that film idea that you probably don't get but you probably just get it in other ways that's but I also you know even on the performance side like with the actors there's there's less of a pressure that's what I mean that's what I mean in other words tension there's a tension created when the camera's rolling and there's film in it or there was and now people can say hey it doesn't matter do as many as you want but I guess that just means the director has to uh, has to say hurry up yeah and you know there's that there's that sense of like you know there's a changing bag and a guy and, and there's the dark art happening inside mm. that changing bag and I remember that feeling on set when I first got in this business where they'd say the director would you know be working with the actor it's, the performance isn't quite there yet and mm-hmm. then go to the DP how are we doing on the camera and they go maybe got one more but we're going to roll out and everybody on set knew that if we roll out it's a whole thing to change right, your reel sure. it's not like well, let me just throw another card in the camera and we'll keep going. And, and it gives that that actor that, that moment of preciousness that changes the, like you said, it gives it stakes yeah, beyond I guess the so. performance. I guess so. I, I think there's truth to that, but I also think just the making of a movie and getting out there and, and saying to an actor, okay, let's, you got to go out and pretend to die now in front of me and make it really good. That's a lot of pressure anyway, sure. you know, <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> and enough. make it really good. Sure. <laughs> Let's just talk about the general size of the crew. Mm-hmm. You're in South Africa, so your buck goes a little bit further. This is back when you're almost like, what, four to one? 
down there? Yeah, no, the I don't ratio? think it was four to one. I don't remember the ratio, but we had okay, it was so darn good. It was great, and so we had like I had 120 people on the crew. I mean, I had a big crew. Yeah, it looked like a real movie, sure. and the the movie that we'd made two years earlier with Phil in Redondo Beach on a soundstage, you know, it, it was you could kind of see the edge of your crew without turning your head too much. But in this one, it was like, oh my god, there's a lot of people here, and they right. were all doing a job. There's something really satisfying about seeing a lot of people working together. I don't know what that is. Yeah, That's yeah. my favorite thing about movies when you're on a set and you realize oh my god there's all these people working on this thing and yeah. and they're doing a job and they don't even they don't even know who you are it's great <laughs> i'm never going to know everybody's name ever <laughs> in africa are there different rules about how long you can work or were you doing 5 day weeks 6 day weeks well you know what i decided we were doing 6 day weeks they they do 6 day weeks which is exhausting but if everybody's used to doing it it's it's sort of more normal here when we do 6 day weeks it it seems like it feels it's like the end a push. of the world, you know. It is a push, but it it was you uh, post production. I mean, pre production was six days a week too. So it was it was you really the, the interesting thing about six days a week is you feel like you're doing nothing else but working on this one thing, and there's something cool about that. And you're not trying to get away for one day during the weekend of doing anything. You're just like right. catching your breath. And so I I didn't mind that. Um, with the crew, one of the things that happened when we were shooting Starship Two was that we would go an hour over every day and so pretty soon we were on sound stages but we were upside down we were shooting during you know we it, it just got crazy and the crew didn't like it at all right. so because i just you're, you're an hour over so you push the next day an hour. and so you're pretty an hour soon so you're coming right. to work so at four, four in the morning in nights, right. and and you're doing this thing yeah. and it has to do with sag and all yeah, that kind of stuff yeah. so so i decided we didn't have those problems but i just decided that i didn't I knew I was, this was a crew that had, had known each other, some people for 20 years. It was the kind of A crew of Cape Town in the off season. And I was a known first time director. And they, they had experience, I found out later on with first time directors. And generally speaking, we're like pretty like, well, let's see about this one. So I decided it was, I kind of knew it was important to make a good impression on the crew. And I tried as a result to be, you know, reasonable and in all ways, including, you know, I never went over. I never, I always shot, I think I went over one time, an hour over one time. And I, the mistake I made was I once shut down an hour early or two hours early because I thought the crew, because the crew really wanted it and they were tired and whatever. And I shouldn't have done that because I, I didn't take I did not shoot some coverage I later needed in the editing room. So mm-hmm. that hurt me. But otherwise, more or less maintaining a normal kind of in control schedule seemed to really help the credibility of the first time director in this case. Sure, yeah. not going like wildly over or anything. Yeah, and just like, you know, look, what I also decided was I knew how complicated these movies were because I'd been on Starship One and I saw what happened when. Were you, were you on set for Starship? <laughs> yeah, two? I was on set for Starship One and Two, and, right. and so I, I, I'd been, I've been on all of them. In fact, on Starship Two, at a certain point, the director would go to sleep, and I would stay up late and write the shot list for the next morning. That was a strange one because the crew started feeling like the creative people didn't know what they were doing, and I didn't want that to happen. Because your days were just rolling, and over. also because I don't think Phil was able to tell them, "Here's where the camera's going to be. Let's go right away," or something like that. And I think he had a DP 
that just waited for him to say what to do. And so I think they started falling behind. And once they start falling behind, they feel like they're failing or sure. something like and that. And it's like that unfortunate So I, I, I decided I didn't want that to happen. And I really sort of gave... The biggest thing I did was I decided that I would delegate as much responsibility to other people as I could without handing it over to them completely, without not taking responsibility myself. And when I found someone who was good at their job, I would just say, okay, that's great, you go. And it worked really well because people really worked hard. One of the things a director has to do is get people to work hard for you. And if you give people responsibility and don't interfere with them and micromanage them, which is this fantasy about directing, then you know everybody's Stanley Kubrick. Oh no, no, put the light over there. I mean, it's bullshit. Okay. And and so as soon as I had that relationship with some key people, and they realized, oh, this guy's not a dick. Then the thing started going really well, and I did what I was supposed to do, which was I emphasized working. With, I, I worked with the actors, and that actually turned out to be. It's another story, but similar story, and it turned out to be a lot of fun. A lot of this movie takes place out in the desert outside mm-hmm. of town. Yeah. Were there any particular challenges in dragging the gear out and dealing with sand and all that? No, we had, they had this, this area of dunes called the Atlantis Dunes that everybody shot in. And there was a movie there right before us coming in and actually just slogging through sand all day long is a fucking drag. Right. You know, it's, it, it's just not as much fun as walking on regular uh, surfaces. Well, I mean, I was just looking at some of the footage just thinking, like, this is wearing the actors out. It is. And it's, and it's and also, just, it, it was the, we started with it because it was hard and it was hard. It was a very and very disorient. I wouldn't do it again because being in a deserty thing is disorient, visually disorienting because everything looks the same in every direction. So it was, it was really being thrown into the deep end. Uh, but I somehow as far as like building coverage, yeah, just understanding what the coverage should be and and how to cover things. And there was just you know it's all this action stuff too, which of course is right. the more difficult stuff to shoot. Now I did have a lot of people there helping me, like John Marlowski and Claudio Fay and uh, Lorenzo, and they were all pretty good about that and so you know there was a lot of pre-production meetings about it and there were some ideas of course when you got to the set on the first day there was just nothing and I remember looking out and going oh that this is there's nothing it's just nothing there's right. nothing here there is and, no set and there, there was no set and there was there was supposed to be some kind of a set with some spires and things of this cre- anyway uh, not to get into it too much and luckily there was Bob Skotek who is like 10 years older than me, he's this ball of energy, and he says, oh, I know what to do, and he runs out there and single-handedly builds the set with his hand and, and some other people, and they build this stuff all up, and it's, suddenly it's there, and it's happening. <laughs> and one of the things that was interesting about Project In General from the South African standpoint was they just had this idea, you just get in, you start. You don't wait around. You don't like you just start shooting. And over and over again, that was the way scenes got done. You just would. okay, well, all right, I guess you're coming in over here. And then and you would work that out and you'd shoot a master. And once I accepted that as a process, shoot a master. There was some criticism of me because I shot masters too too many takes of the master. Mm. But I was essentially organizing the scene in the master. And then we would go in and do coverage. Right. And after a while, it seemed like, well, of course, this is the way you make movies, you know. And uh, (laughs) but it was actually interesting how you. You had to always make yourself start. You know, it was so easy to sit there and be afraid to take that first step or, okay, let's put the camera here or something like that. So I started looking for opportunity. What's my first shot going to be was, yeah. is what I always ended up thinking about. Yeah. What will the first thing be? And it would, and sometimes Lorenzo would come up with, oh, here, why don't we do this? And I would go, oh, that's a good idea. And, start with and, something. And start with something. And, yeah. and the energy would go. And they had this saying in South Africa 
that in the morning you're drinking champagne, but in the afternoon you're you're down to black label, which means you're drinking the cheapest beer because you're just going, go, go, right, go. Right. So all morning you're going really slow to make it perfect. Right. And then in the afternoon you're trying to make up your day. Right, you're and, just uh, slapping shots yeah, together. Right. The, the other thing that I had was I had a really good first assistant and he was the best first assistant in South Africa probably, Lee Tanchel. And he knew how to run a set. And what I realized about a good first assistant director at that moment was a good first assistant director is like your line, is your on-set producer in a weird way. He can be a creative. He was really good. He would say, you know, Ed, this, uh, we'd be looking at locations and we'd have this location or that location. It was like time to make a decision. And, and I would be like, mm. and he would like, you know, Ed, we don't have the, we don't have the right location yet. Yeah. And he knew when to push yeah. and when not to push. A good first AD has read your script absolutely. and knows your story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so that was a lot of help, too, in, in that idea of, uh, of, of running things along. I just decided that, you know, if you don't get in the way of the crew, the crew wants to make the movie, too, you know. Right. So let them. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the insects. You've got mm-hmm. you've got some puppet stuff on yeah. set, practical, and then you've got a ton of CG. They, we did the normal problem of trying to do more with puppets than you can do. Our puppets were okay, and we did a few things. John Murlowski's second unit did some really interesting ideas with shadows of bugs running by and stuff like that, which was smart. And mostly, you know, you have to, I mean, the bugs are complicated enough that you have to have CG, and so you're just shooting plates and having people react to things that aren't there. (laughs) I wonder this about these kinds of films. Is there ever a moment where you're shooting plates without CG bugs in them and the thought crosses your mind, is this even going to work? Or is it the case that you've You've been on set for two of these films now, and you've been through it enough times to know, like, the drill. Well, you know, I had watched someone do it, and then at first I kind of didn't do what I'd seen Verhoeven do, and then I realized, oh, you just have to act out the bugs, and you have to be the eyelines, and that's what you do. You have to help the actors by establishing the eyeline, and sometimes it helps if you make a big noise or whatever that is, act it out a little bit, but all you're really doing is just telling them what to react to. And you have to coordinate their performances. We had a scene where that I really learned in the in the making of on on Starship Three, where a bunch of actors are inside a spaceship, and the big alien rips open the top and reaches down, and and so you're directing that all without the alien presence in it. So you just have to tell them what's happening. There's the sets being torn apart. Yeah, it's being torn apart now, and and then and the the DPS, some lights coming in, a light source coming in, and all you're trying to do is get and the actors. Actors really kind of like doing that stuff, and they react, you know, and you, it's up to you to decide if they're reacting enough or too much, and, and that's kind of how you do it. And once everybody knows, I noticed this on the first one, coming up on the day when we were shooting bugs for the first time and there were no, not going to be any bugs, everybody, including all the actors, were like, oh my God, how are we going to do it? Oh my God, they, they won't really be there. And then once it started going, and it was usually Paul telling them how, where to look and how to react, they just started doing it like that. And it, and it worked pretty well. So you just kind of took that lead and just... And so you just have to go with that. And, and you have to help everybody pretend. Were there any considerations? You're pretty much in the desert or you're on a soundstage on this. Was yeah. there any consideration about having that claustrophobic, I'm on a soundstage feeling? You mean, was that a problem? For no, just or? a consideration. Or was the feeling more that we've got this desert stuff to open it up? And Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, no, it didn't feel as setbound as the second one did. The second one was really setbound, and it was a problem. I don't know that any of us in the creative side had a really great idea to counteract that, like visually to make you feel like, oh, look, how, look at this place. It, it just felt that way. It felt setbound. 
Was that why you sort of came up with the desert planet concept for the third one to make sure that you had some scope and scale? The, the real concept on three was to have three different storylines going so that if one storyline bogged down or wasn't good, I could cut to another one. <laughs> you know, that, that was really the, 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 the concept there was like to have different things going on that you could cut back and forth between. So you didn't if you got in trouble, you didn't have to sustain it there. I, you know, and I guess I knew we needed with Starship Troopers, you needed something that looks alien enough. And that that's hard to find. So that's what I was looking for. I didn't really ever worry too much about being inside or outside. I just kind of went wherever I wanted to go with the story. I didn't. I did not feel like I was going to be bounded to too many sets. Now that does happen. I mean, it happened on Hollow Man with Paul. Uh, that the yeah. Invisible yeah. movie. You just ended up feeling trapped like you were trapped in under underground time. in that lab. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't feel like we had that problem on this. So I feel like I already know the answer to this question because we've talked a lot about it. But obviously, being on set for the first two films gave you a pretty large preparatory area of skill to be able to take this on with some degree of confidence. I think it did. It was great. I wouldn't have wanted to do it without that because I could look at, you know, I could sit there literally and go, what would Verhoeven do? Uh, you know, and, and realize how dumb I was by comparison. But you could use your, and I had seen him do things and I had seen other things go wrong and so I was really well prepared for the experience of it. That still didn't mean that I remember Claudio Fay said to me as we were driving to the set the first day, he said, it's always like going to the dentist. And the first week on your first film, the first you know week is just terrible. And then the first few days can be just terrible. And then you'll start having fun doing something. And that's really what happened. And it was the acting. It was the actors that was fun for me. And the rest of the stuff, I just kind of, I think it's like when you're a kid and you're first learning to drive a car. It's like, there's too many things. I can't track it right, all. Right. And then you kind of get used to it. And so it wasn't, it was never, I wouldn't say it was ever that much fun, but it was doable after the first week. Just because of the stakes of it or? I just think it's hard to direct it. I, I don't. It's probably just me, and, and maybe it's because of my my training under Paul Verhoeven. But if when I see a director on the set and they're happy and having a good time, I think something's wrong. You know, I, I just think it's too. Do you actually rude. worry for the film itself at that point? Well, I just think you're sitting there. I think you're always worrying about time. You're always looking, kind of like, how are we doing? How are we doing? And there's always a problem to solve. And I think with people like I, I was on, I worked with Michelle Gondry at a certain point too, and I remember having worked with Paul and then going to the set with Gondry and Gondry just looked fucking miserable all the time and I think you just are worried that it's not good enough and you're right too you should be sitting there going how can I make this better how can I make this better how can I make this better and it never ends and it continues into post-production. That's right. Except now you have a limited, you have your flexibility is more limited. So you get into post-production. This is even though it's direct-to-video this is still a studio film. At some point the studio is going to put their stamp on it, but you've, you you get in there and you have a chance to do a director's cut. Yeah, I did. I did. Actually, they were very kind to me. Again, I had a an editor in South Africa who put together a kind of a working cut of it, but there were a lot of problems with it. And I didn't quite understand what they were, but I knew that we'd shot some things. There were just things missing. Was that something that was happening in conjunction with the shoot? Yeah, yeah. There was a editor there who was cutting and stuff. And I kind of wanted to have somebody to bounce things off of. But as you 
know, there's not that much time in production. And I didn't really know this editor that well. So it was it didn't turn out to be that helpful. Occasionally... Right. And this is at a time, again, because you're shooting on film, yeah. th- there's a further delay in the process that yeah, yeah, needs yeah. to be developed and telecined right. and sunk. Right. And then it can be brought into an editing right. situation. So there, he's probably not even seeing the dailies so, in a way that he can touch them. Right. So occasionally... So the, you're right about that. And so occasionally he was able to say, well, I did just go through the spaceship crash scene, something we shot a long time ago. Exactly. But, uh, you know, we, we don't have this shot. And so we were able to get a setback. We did two days of reshoots at the end, and we were able to make certain little things like that. So that was useful. But what was interesting to me, and I really liked uh, the editor, but he was a sound editor. And the movie was all put together and had all this great sound work done on it. It really had... This is the first assembly. The first assembly. And it had effects, and it had music, and it had cues. And yet, it was almost like the sound, whenever I would try to change, if I really wanted to change something, it couldn't change that much because it was all this underlying sound work. So when we got back here, we took everything off and we took it back almost down to dailies. And we recut it with a guy named Steve Kemper, who ended up not taking editing credit. He's an executive producer on it. And Kemper is a real editor who had been an editor for Steven Spielberg and stuff like that on Strange Tales and, or Amazing Tales and stuff like that. And he really knew his stuff. And he really he just made night. It was a difference of night and day. And again, he, he knew he had great taste. At Kemper as far as did. like the tone and the style he of it, just, he just chose. He did something, you know this, you're an editor, but he said, oh, you got you to look at all the dailies. So he looked at all the dailies. And then he would say, oh, there was a really great head turn in that scene. I can use it in this scene. And so he was able to do a lot of stuff like that. And, and he knew a lot of tricks in, he could fix a bad cut or a bad thing just because he could make you look somewhere else. It was really great. Mm-hmm. And so it was a pleasure to see the movie kind of, oh, that's what the movie's supposed to look like. And so that was a good experience in terms of having, knowing you need a really good editor to get your movie out of the, all the stuff you've shot. And I think there was a lot of material for him to work with too. Do you think it was a benefit to have two hands on it, to have like one guy do an assemble that was just kind of like a throw together and see how it feels and then have somebody else kind of take it and I think it was sculpt it. I, I think it was necessary in this case I think it would have made me very uncomfortable if I hadn't had a sense that the movie could be cut together while I was shooting it so there was for good or for bad there was a sense as oh there's an editor working and then it, it must be going okay and he says it's going okay and then when I got back it was in a form where you could show it to people. It looked like a movie as opposed to, you know, a big it's problem. Just a bunch of film cans. A bunch of me- a mess. Okay. So that was probably helpful too. But again, I think if you have a good DP, a good DP beats every bad DP. And a really good editor is is a hard thing to find too. Those pickups that you guys did, was that directly after you Yeah, it was right after. It was like the, the two days of pickups after main unit had finished. So that was like maybe a week later or something? No, it was like the next day. Oh, the next like day. So maybe was the, like, on Monday. Monday and Tuesday after taking the so day the off on Sunday. So the editor was basically running onto set saying, don't shut down. Well, yet. no, I had talked to the, the, I actually had the editor on set for that. He, and, and he got to do, so he got to direct a couple of little things that he thought he needed. And so right, right. that made him very happy at the time. <laughs> of course. You know. Um, so how different was your director's cut that you turned over to what eventually became the final version? Of the film? Well, it was like the same film, but with better choices made. You know, just the scenes worked better. The thing Kemper said when he saw the original cut was he said, well, you know, you're just missing all this good stuff. 
And it was like he'd read the script and he saw the script and he was like, okay, you're missing that, you're missing that, you're missing that. And we had the material. So the editor's sensibility was just not to be, again, it was that idea of you're not honoring the camera, the gags in the right way. Mm-hmm. And partially it was him trying to put in every shot we had and, you know, whatever. And Kemper just kind of went in and said, no, it's this, it's this. And then it was like, oh, there's a scene. So right. it was interesting that way for me. Like a magic reveal. Almost. A little, well, well, yeah, it was just, it went from being odd to a little better than mediocre. You know, (laughs) (laughs) at that time, was there a running time necessary to get to or not go beyond? Yeah, there was a there was some concern that the script was too short. And then I added a bunch of stuff. I'll never do that again. And and the script came in longer than than I wanted to. And then I I had added to scenes and it was hard to cut the time out. So, yes, uh, a script uh, continuity person had done a expert reading and said it was going to be too short. And it wasn't. Never listen to those people. (laughs) (laughs) Was that somebody that studio brought in no that was my that was my that was the uh, continuity person on the on the picture so somebody in south africa that was their job yeah and and they they did that short yeah yeah. stopwatch gag so i kind of break it up into sections the next section is just to talk about mistakes (laughs) a mistake that cost you a shot like we already talked about this like you decided to make the crew happy you'd send them home early one day that was a mistake i talked myself into leaving without a couple close-ups and i should always get the close-ups right you know I'm trying to think what what went wrong. Well, you know, things go wrong. And uh, I think I already said what probably where I went wrong was not enough preparation and and not enough like, okay, I need a better idea. I need a better, slightly better idea. Just keep going that way. How much uh, pre-production, once you got to Africa, how much pre-production did you have before you were up and shooting? God, it seemed like forever because it was six-day weeks, but it may have been four weeks or something like six weeks, maybe four weeks, six weeks. It was a long time, but it wasn't that long. And we really worked hard. The, the crew was great. No, it must have been six weeks. We built, we had sets built and stuff like that. Especially in a film like this where you're 100% from the ground up world building. Yeah. It's not like you're going to Africa to shoot a Jason Bourne movie and you're like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we shot in that cafe? You're well, you like, had to build no, sets to and you had to find everything. you had to find locations that look right and you know that kind of thing and right. uh, modern locations right. or weird locations that right. could be used for that stuff. But you know, then there were things that went wrong, and that was hard to deal with because suddenly you know we had we were shooting this big set that was it was a unique location. It was in a service tunnel under a mountain next to a freeway tunnel that was under. Is a that mountain. where they hang the people? <clears throat> uh, no, that's a, that was a soundstage. This was where the brain bug was in a in a oh, weird okay. cell yeah, yeah. and that was like a, a mile and a half under a mountain in this weird access thing oh, and we had this big door that had to open and reveal the brain bug and everything went wrong with the set that day it was kind of a production design problem and the doors broke and everything went got behind and it was hard to recover from that and i don't know what you can do except you know you struggle the best you can i stayed on and John, the, the main unit moved on. I stayed on to finish the scene with John, the second unit, John Marlowski, the second unit director. And so we shot with a much smaller crew, which was an interesting thing for me to do because I could see the difference between the resources. And then the main unit went on and shot this other stuff. That was what we decided to do. So you're, you, you're used to having like this this city of crew around Yeah, you and suddenly and I have all... 25 people. And they're <laughs> like, oh yeah, we're the, we're the second unit. And, and then I get back to main unit finally. And they've just kind of gone off on their own little turkey shoot 
and they made all these decisions and well we decided we were going to cut this and cut that so it was a kind of a crisis <laughs> and I said no we're not going to do this god damn it and that was the only time I ever kind of like you had to sort of like ex- exert yeah, well, your it was power. like the father came back and said no, yeah. kids what are you doing and right. then other kids were like oh we're sorry you know <laughs> so so that was that but I mean those things happen mostly I would say the biggest problem with the whole thing was not having enough time to execute things in a way where things could ever be more than perfunctory you just don't have the time to do anything where some you get a really cool moment or something like that right right because you're moving so too fast was there anything that happened where you didn't really realize it until you got into post-production oh god yeah that's the that's the horror of post-production and it's more i wouldn't say there weren't really big mistakes where you go oh my god there's we don't have something we thought we had it was more like things weren't just not as as elegant or good things were just oh that could have been better somehow you know or i wish i had this other angle over here i don't have so it has to play in the master and it's just okay you know was it things like your memory of it was different than how it played out on the screen you know how sometimes you're on set and, it, and like a, one director told me like they're sitting in the back of a car shooting a scene and she's not watching the monitor she's just watching the scene play out and she says cut and she goes we got it that was great and he's like I don't think you got what you think you got because I'm looking through the and mm-hmm. that's not and she's like no no we got it and then when she saw the footage she was like oh we didn't get it that happened to me where so when I was working with Verhoeven a lot Occasionally, he would have an idea. Somebody would have an idea, and you'd shoot that on the day, you know. And sometimes you got lucky with an accident, or something would happen on the day. And but occasionally, the director would have an idea. Oh, let's do this, and he would shoot it, and the director would be happy, and the whole crew would think it was really cool because they were making up something completely new. And then you see it, and it's not very good. And that happened on Starship a couple times with Paul. And Paul said, told me later, he said. Yeah, usually when I have this great idea on the set, it ends up on the cutting room floor. And so I was shooting something where some people were being hung, including uh, Johnny Rico. They're all being hung. And I sort of started shooting as a comedy scene because it was funny to me. And everybody on the set thought it was great. And the people at Sony thought it was the greatest thing that they'd ever seen. And I was a star director. And it all came out in the editing room. It was all wrong. Just because the tonal shift, the tonal shift wasn't right. That wasn't the right there. There was one thing that worked at the very end of the picture we shot the same night that was very funny, and it was supposed to be funny, and that was good. It was the terrorist being hung in a wheelchair. That actually was funny, but the other stuff was not funny. It just uh, it didn't work. This whole notion that there's a value to says the screenwriter. There's a value to the screenplay because it's actually survived over time and it's been vetted. Right. And stuff you make up in the moment might feel very good, particularly with actors who will do anything right. for you, but it may not be what you're supposed to do. Is there anything? I don't know when the last time as you watched this movie. Is there anything that when you watch it just still kills you? I, I you know I haven't watched it. I don't watch it. I don't really watch any of my movies. You know. When's the last time you saw it? I probably saw Starship 3. I don't think I've watched Starship 3 since it was since we finished it. I saw it so many times. I saw it 500 or 600 times or whatever you see it. Right, right. And it got to be a point where you see it so many times where the movie seems to go by in 45 minutes. It's just like zoom, you know how does that ever happen with you when you're watching the movie for the 100th time? In, I in honestly sometimes what happens to me is in a <laughs> Uh, every filmmaker I've ever worked with don't listen to this part I'll zone out for entire sections of the film and I'll kind of come back and go oh yeah this part 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, oh you know what well, I mean? no, like, I know. I understand what you mean. Like I've that, seen but, well, it so many times, it's really hard. To right. There are there are some things I like in Starship Three that when I see, if I saw them, I'd go, oh, I still like that. There's a couple little cuts at the end that I think are interesting. There's some there's some amusing things that we came to. I I, I like the weird montage at the end to the Lord's Prayer and stuff like that. That stuff still makes me laugh. But but I I don't know. I also think you're so worn out by it, and you really can't. I, maybe I will look at it again in a few years. It'll after ten years have passed, and I will be able to see it more objectively. But because that has happened with RoboCop and with Starship Troopers, where you can kind of look at it now, it's been twenty years, and you can go, "Oh wow, look at the, look what someone did." But so that's a, that's a. I mean, this total side note, but like, how long did you go before you were able to look at RoboCop and be like, "Oh, that's a that's a movie separate from me." Um, I, the, the rule seems to be 10 years. And I heard, first person who said that was, was I heard Tim Burton said that. I mentioned it to Verhoeven. He said 10 years. And there is this kind of thing that happens after 10 years where you you can see it from the outside as opposed to completely from the inside. Do you think that's more because you as a person over 10 years have just changed so much that it, it, you can see it from a different perspective as a, as a person? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I noticed. So Miner and I, Mike Miner and I, the guy who I wrote RoboCop with, were in Dallas for the 25-year reunion. And they played RoboCop at the Texas State Theater in Dallas, which was where they arrested Lee Harvey Oswald. But anyway, we're, we're sitting there and we're going, oh, we're not going to watch this. Yeah, we've seen this movie too many times before. And then we said, well, let's just, so we're standing in the back. And I was like, well, let's just stay for this. Let's just stay for that. So we stayed for we half stayed the for movie. movie. And I know that Verhoeven and I will watch Starship from the back and we watch until a certain point. And there are certain things that are always fun to watch. But it's just, it's difficult after a while. I don't know. It's just something you did. And it's, mm-hmm. I think the great tragedy, fun or irony, I don't know if the tragedy of making movies is that you're trying to make something that you adore but you can't ever really see it right because I, other people can see it you can, you're trying to have that movie experience that you had when you were a kid and you want to have that and then you can kind of do it for other people but you can't really have it yourself with your own thing do you think it's because you're so caught up in the closeness to every compromise you made along the way to, you know what I mean? There's that preciousness. No, I, I, I look at a script. I look at a, okay, if, if we put on RoboCop now, I would be having two experiences at the same time. Oh, look how that scene is working. Oh, it's not working right there. Oh, I never liked that line. That's one experience. The other experience is. Oh, I remember that day. That was the day we had cheeseburgers on the set. Oh, and that was the day where that guy fell down and hit his hand on it. So you, you're, you're, you've got all these different realities going. And the weird thing is you don't forget any of that stuff. You immediately go, oh, that was a shot where the stuntman was hurt. Right. You know, and so you're bringing in all this other information to right. the experience. And, and sometimes you can get, after 10 years have gone by, you can get a little caught up in it and go, oh, wow, look at that. And I think then you can appreciate what you may have done well, you know, at that moment a little bit. It takes so long. I like to close the show with the circle takes, which is why it's called that. And this is just about the lessons that you learn, the things you're able to take away from it and apply to anything else that you're doing or advice that you can give. What is the biggest thing that surprised you about directing a feature film? How much fun it was to work with actors that I really liked actors, that there was something magical about actors 
doing stuff and watching a scene come to life was really cool and it was something I had worried about a lot and it was something that I wasn't sure about and I knew you could if you had a bad relationship with an actor you could make your life really miserable I luckily I didn't have any of that I had I had this one great moment on the set where I decided that I had actually listened to some advice from some other people who directed and I had decided I should treat the actors in a certain way because I was a first time director and I also knew that I was a writer-director and that actors were afraid of writer-directors because they often had very particular ways they were hearing things and seeing things. And luckily, I don't, I'm not that way. I kind of draw the line. And if I have a good line, I don't want you to change it. But if you change anything you want, if it makes it better, just don't make it worse. And so what I decided to do with the actors, a friend of mine had, had worked with Richard uh, Linkletter. Linkletter. And Linkletter said early in his career, to to a friend of mine. An actor meets you and decides in about 15 minutes whether or not you can help them or hurt them. And I thought, oh, that's absolutely got to be the case. So what I did when I met with the actors for the first time, and sometimes you're only meeting them like the night before you shoot them, and I would say, okay, hey, it's really great you're here, uh, and I cast you because I think you're great for the part. Uh, I wrote this script, and I wrote this part for you. I wrote this part. And now it belongs to you. It's your responsibility. You, you do whatever you want with it. That's yours. Okay, I give it to you. And what I will promise you is I won't. That's like music to an actor's And ears. I said, and here's the second thing you say. And you have to mean it. And I won't let you look bad. And one day on the set, three a weekend, all my actors, who were all the cool kids, you know, because and I'm not a cool kid. I'm never a cool kid. All the actors, I was sitting there kind of miserable by myself at a picnic table waiting between takes. And all the actors came over and sat down at my table. And I realized they all like they had decided that they liked me. And that was great because then they'll do anything for you. And uh, I was always like, you know, what, what can we do? How can we make this work? And I think that the more presence you have with actors, the more you're there for them. That was the thing that surprised me that I didn't think that would be as much fun as it was for me. Was there anything that you made a note of while you were making the film? Something that you did where you're like, I'm not going to do that again? Yeah, I, I think anything you do where you're interfering with the first level of performance. In other words, an actor does something. And that's, you know, I I don't know how else to say it. The best you're going to get is what the actor does. And so if you do anything that takes them out of that performance, that's what you shouldn't do again. In other words, line reading, that's why people don't like line readings, unless you're Ernst Lubitsch. You know, uh, you shouldn't do line readings because then the the actor's not acting anymore. They're imitating you. And so anything that takes you out of that is something that I was careful about. What else did I think I wouldn't do again? Hmm. Yeah, I'm not thinking of anything right now. I'm sure there were a lot of things that I wouldn't do again. Was there something that wound up being more difficult than you thought it was going to be when you started the process? Yeah, all the all the action stuff, all the movement stuff, all that stuff takes more time than you think. It's really easy to think, well, what's the big deal? The camera, somebody runs by the camera and the camera pans over and they fall down and it's just never that easy. It's, you know, again, that stuff takes more time than you think. And you'd been on a set a few times or... When I was on the set as the writer, I was probably not paying enough attention to that kind of stuff. I was paying attention to other things. And when you're not paying that much attention, it looks easy. Yeah, it, it looks easy, absolutely. Yeah. And you don't realize, oh, every little thing. I mean, one, one day I realized that every shot in every movie Paul Verhoeven made was completely groomed by him exactly. He, it was down to timing. Everything he did, he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. More than I did, anyway. So, Was there anything that wound up being easier than you thought it would be? 
I don't think there's anything easy about making a movie. I just don't think so. And I think I think if you if you're having a good time and it's easy, then you're about to get hit in the face. You know, I mean, it's it's just I'm almost superstitious about that. I don't think there's that easy. Uh, Even when everything goes your way, it's hard. The easiest day on set is a tough day. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything um, having done it once that you see something now that you know you would do differently the next time? Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned this earlier. I would try to write to scale. And I would really think things through to scale. Like, okay, can I afford this? Can I make it look good? Can I pull it off? I would like to say if it's too big, then write another version where it's not too big. You know, right? This is, this is a unique experience for someone who's writing and directing their own material. Mm-hmm. You get a chance to really run the script past the director in the writing phase. You mean, you mean when? Internally. Yeah, but, like but, that, but the process you're describing right. is a writer-director experience. But, but, the, but the director and the writer were both in denial about reality. <laughs> and so they fucked themselves, That's is right. what I would say. You know, it's really... <laughs> yeah, I guess it's, you know, like I always say, the biggest challenge for me on set is to look at the monitor and know what I'm getting on the frame. Versus like there's all this craziness around you and you have to like do this one thing. And it sounds like that skill is also a difficult one to master is to to understand the director's ability to execute the script as you're working as the writer. Well, I think I think you have to stop. You're not when when you're on the set, you can't be the writer anymore. I think there are things that being the writer helps you as a director because you, as I say, you know what the scene's about. You know, I need this close up. I, I always knew, I never didn't have the coverage I needed because I was able to say, I need, to, I need to see his face at this moment. And that's all you need to do. And that's really helpful. And some directors don't seem to know that. <laughs> but I think that a dire- what a director does is different from what a writer does. And it is different because you are making pieces of film that are, they're from the out, the, the story is often as a writer, you're kind of inside it, but the director is outside it, and he's and he's shooting it from the outside, and that is its own. That process of visualization is so important, at least in an action adventure movie. You really have to think about that. And some people, like Steven Spielberg and Paul Verhoeven, are naturals at it, but I was not. And you really they, need to they think, think in terms. Of they those think pieces. in terms of those visceral pieces, and they yeah. go, "It's going to be this to this to this." My, my editor, who had worked with him, said that Spielberg, when he sat down, when he was working with Spielberg, Spielberg looked at they looked at all the dailies for this for a scene that they were cutting and then Spielberg would take a piece of paper out and he would go this shot to 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 this shot and he would give it to him and it was that was it so he understood perfectly what he was shooting and also right. what he was doing right. which is and then it was just know, a matter of deciding exactly what yeah, to make those edits right. but not what but, the order was going to yeah. be but wow. I think he knew, I think when the footage is good, the editor knows. I, I remember when Frankie Uriasi one day came in and said to, about, to us about working on Robocop, and Frank had worked with everybody, he said, this is the best footage I've ever had. It just cuts, it just, everything is there. And so I think that when the scenes are shot well, they kind of fall together well, too, yeah. unless there's a problem. So I'd like to close with advice for the aspiring director. I'll get this out while this siren goes by. And this is for uh, someone who maybe went to film school, maybe they didn't, maybe they're making YouTube videos, maybe they've made a couple of short films. But they're at the point in their life where they're either looking at the opportunity or thinking about making the plunge and directing a film. What kind of advice could you give someone? Well, I mean, I think it's overwhelming when you're looking at doing it. 
and then it becomes more specific when you do it and you can't cheat that. So it's good to do it. I think you could shoot, you know, if you've already shot some stuff, you know, it'd probably be better if you, you've had some experience on a set before you shoot your feature. So shooting little scenes. I love um, if you ever go through the Peter Jackson's extras on The Hobbit, uh, not on The Hobbit, on The Lord of the Rings. It's sort of amazing because he shot scenes, you know, just to play around with a video camera that are almost exactly what's in the movie, but he shot them on sets that hadn't been dressed. So he was already shooting the movie before he was shooting the movie. And so I think anything you can do like that is good, of course. You should probably study some filmmakers you really like. And you can do that now. And here's what I mean by studying them. Like, say you like Chinatown. Roman Polanski. Get the movie Chinatown. Get the script Chinatown. Read the script. Watch the movie. Watch the movie three or four times until you're sick to fucking death of it. And then do that with other people. I think what you really have to do is get yourself into a notion of translating to the visual. Because a screenplay, as a writer, I feel screenwriters have to have a visual component to them, but in a kind of a maxi way. You have to think visually to write a good screenplay, but you don't write shot, 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 shot. And a director has to break it down, shot, 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 shot. And that's the process that you really have to get good at visually. Again, to quote Paul Verhoeven, Paul says, well, Ed, you know, of course, uh, the, the directing is, is very simple. It is, uh, it is uh, the people skills and the visual skills. <laughs> Forgive my accent. It's not really how Paul... And that's all it is, right? Yeah, but it's right. He's right. It's true. There are people skills and visual skills. And the people skills take you from, you know, talking to the head of the studio to the actor to the catering guy. And the visual skills are what the thing looks like. And so you really have to keep on that track of trying to figure out, okay, what is this going to look like? I also think when it comes to actors, it's good to look at performances you like. I actually, the, the, the thing that really helped me a lot with actors was a book I read about John Cassavetes. To me, this was a very inspiring thing. I'm not saying everybody should read this book, but he basically said, tell the actor as little as possible. You know, don't ruin the performance by talking it through too much. Don't get psychological. Mm-hmm. In fact, he used to do this thing where he would say, I'm not going to tell you, you just go do it. And that really is the trick. And if you can let people just be good actors and interpret the scene and then say, well, a little more, a little less, or let's try it this way, I think that's better than trying to say, well, what this really means and how you should really say this. And here, let me do it like I do. That, I think, is a mistake. So anything you can do to prepare yourself for that, that's almost a leader. Again, that's a people skill. That's a leadership role. Just prepare yourself for the visual and the people stuff. (laughs) It's that easy. (laughs) If If you can. Ed Neumeyer, thank you so much for being on Circle Take. My pleasure. I hope this helps. And good luck to all of you who are listening who might be making a movie. That's our show for today. The Circle Take is produced by Blue Apples Media. Our music is written and performed by Corey Fader Jacobs. Check him out at themasterfader.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes where there's hopefully more episodes for you to check out. You can like us on Facebook at The Circle Take. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at The Circle Take where we post photos from our conversations, schedule updates, and previews of upcoming shows. And all of this, the podcast links, clips, notes, and more is all on our website at thecircletake.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Schmidt, and you can circle that one.